0: Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop midwayusa.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy,
1: and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Guys, welcome back. We have another great episode for you here today. We have my friend Cody Catherine from Alabama. So we're taking the trip down south. We're talking habitat in Alabama and also on some of Cody's farms in Kentucky. So we're kind of diversifying a little bit here. This is an awesome conversation. I'll tell you right up front. So be be ready to take some notes and, and learn a few things. One thing that I thought was pretty awesome we talked about Cody learned how to drive a bulldozer on YouTube and is able to rent a dozer for his habitat work, you know, and not have to pay operator costs, not have to pay the high amount of fees from from a service. So I thought that was extremely intriguing. I call it a dozer hack. So we're going to talk about that and how that can relate to us because I know I have plenty of dozer work in my future. We also talk about... Cody's job as a habitat manager on a 3,000-acre ranch down there in Alabama. We talk about some other hacks as habitat managers that that we can do. We talk about the difference between southern habitat and Midwest or northern habitat. We talk about kudzu. We talk about growing big deer in the south and letting them get to that five-year-old age. And we actually talk about a success story where Cody, due to his habitat management, gets his dad... On a slammer buck in Kentucky. Great story. So guys, tune in. Great episode here. Cody Cothran, out of Alabama. Um, thanks for tuning in for that. Now we have a couple things I want to cover. Anybody who's leaving us a great review on Apple iTunes, we are going to be sending out decals to you. A free 5-inch Habitat podcast decal. What this does, guys, this helps us rate and find new listeners by these reviews coming in. So, we're getting good reviews. We show up on other people's feeds and phones and and pop up more by keywords and this and that because you guys are liking what we're doing and we want to, you know, send you a gift for that. We love it and we appreciate it. So, I've seen a lot of guys on there who are leaving their address in the review. That is perfect. I can easily find you and send you that uh, that decal. So thank you very much to those who are doing that. We truly appreciate it. I also want to thank everybody in the Habitat Chat group. Uh, habitat Chat on Facebook, we are almost up to 2,500 members, and it's one of the best groups for habitat management discussion on the interweb. I'm not kidding. You should see the subjects. We get, you know, 5, 6, 10 different subjects a day on there, and they're not just a bunch of people, you know throwing out random ideas, educated, formal responses from people who are experienced and, and people are getting their questions answered, it is awesome. There's a wealth of knowledge on there. So go on over to Facebook if you're not already. Join the group Habitat Chat by Habitat Podcast and, uh, you know, put you some projects on there. Let's see what you're up to. Uh, that's what we like doing, guys. We like to see what you guys are up to, seeing how you're taking the stuff we talk about and putting it to work out in the field. Our friend Corey uh, Sullivan just put a great video up on there yesterday from uh, New York. So, thanks for doing that, Corey. Now, I want to talk about a couple of our partners real quick. We have Afflictor broadheads, guys. Afflictor, they are assembled in the great state of Texas. Awesome customer service. I shot the fixed EXT broadhead this year, 155 grain. And I put it through a buck almost a long ways into the dirt. Ended up uh, sticking six inches in the dirt and straight. I can't stress enough how much I like fixed blade sharp broadheads that fly well out of a good tuned bow. Now, if you go to their website afflictorbroadheads you can punch in your email address and get ten percent off your order. Tell them habitat podcast sent you. Um, they have some cool colors to match whatever you got going on in your bow. Sharp heads. And, you know, they're they're American broadheads. They're tough. They're indestructible. They're great. And Brian and I love shooting them. Check them out, com. I also want to talk about Exodus Trail Cameras. So, I was just up north at the new Northern 70, and I hung one of my Exodus Render cell cameras, oh, probably 15 foot up a tree as a security camera. So, we're doing some work up there now, got some equipment, and uh, now... I have an idea who is coming and going over the winter while I'm up there. Now I hung my other render on a uh, travel corridor near the thermal bedding. So we're gonna see what we can find cruising through there on these cell cameras. And what I can't express enough is how cool the video cell cam text started to get. So if if you have your video camera, I'm sorry, your cell camera set on video mode, it'll send you the video to the app and you watch the app and it is very clear very awesome footage and being able to see more and read more about the deer than just a still shot I'm pretty addicted to the video mode now Um, I never thought I'd do that before because it takes a lot longer to check cameras but you can learn a lot more at the same time so check those guys out Exodus trail cameras I'd go over to their Facebook if I were you hit the like button hit the follow button They're posting up great content on their YouTube, on their Facebook all the time. For instance, there's a blog on there right now, Why Cellular Trail Cameras Spook Deer, What You Didn't Know. So, something to learn about spooking deer with your cameras. Another one. The last, this is on their podcast actually, the Utah Trail Camera Ban. Utah just banned trail cameras. They dive into that on their podcast. They just pump out a bunch of great media. And um, I'm a big fan of it, and y'all should be too, because there's a lot of media and content out there these days, and these guys spend the time and do it right and make high quality stuff. Exodus Trail Cameras, Exodus Outdoor Gear on Facebook, check them out, give them a follow. Now I want to thank other partners, before we get going with Cody here, we have Packer Max Cultipackers, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook. Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake State's Realty and Auction. Morse Nursery. Killer Food Plots. Exodus Trail Cameras and Afflict Broadheads. Guys, we really appreciate you. If you want to know what we're up to, scroll down in the show notes below this episode in the details. And you'll have all kinds of links to all of our different media. Uh, oh, one thing I did want to say. We're putting video-recorded podcasts up on YouTube now. So, for instance, if we're talking like we we will in next week's episode, we talked with Vince about his land plan that he had done by uh, our friend Jake, and we go into how he killed a couple of his deer. Well, we throw the map of his plan right on the screen, and we talk through it as we're recording the podcast. So if you're not following our YouTube yet, scroll down, find the link, head on over there, hit subscribe, and uh, all of our other info is down there too. Leave us a review, find our land plan services. Find our apparel. All of our sponsors' links are down there. Check it out. Without further ado, I'll get us in here with Cody Catherine out of Alabama. So, Cody, tell me about your uh, hunt yesterday. We had to postpone the, the podcast. <laughs> podcast. You were covered up in deer, brother. How'd that go?
2: Oh, man, this is, this is uh, one of those heartbreaking stories, you know, that you don't nice. really want to hear. You know, you hear people talk about a million dollars. You know, I've never seen a million dollars in person, but, you know, I know it's there. And uh, <laughs> we got this one particular buck uh, that we call Box, and he's just an amazing five-and-a-half-year-old. Started getting pictures of him three seasons ago and watching him. and But I could tell as a three-year-old he was a five-star in his age category, you know. And um, so we started on X and dropping points where we had camera pictures of him and yada, yada, yada. And then come to find out he's somewhere totally different and um anyways we worked on it, worked on it, worked on it and brought it all the way down to here and i had a i had the omicron sniffle so i had 10 days of isolation and so i took it at the hunting land and yesterday was day 10 so i chased this buck for nine days and we're bow hunting only in in big hardwoods 3,000 acre block of hardwoods and we got him pinned to about a i don't know probably uh I'd say a 40-acre oval, but it's in big ridge hardwood. So if you go, if you step off the logging roads, you know, into those dry leaves, he's he's back over the next ridge, you know. And um, so anyway, so I get posted up. And, I mean, I ain't in the stand at very long at all. And he comes running from the way that I came in with the wind over my back right shoulder and kind of caught me off guard. You know, I turned and I saw him about that time he saw me and knew something wasn't right. So he skirted me at 30 and I couldn't move at all. And I, I had my phone in my hand. So I hit record and twisted my wrist and zoomed in and got some footage of him. And, you know, to see him in person, you know, he's a good deer anywhere, but especially Alabama coming through those hardwoods. He was having to put his, you know, stick his nose out and roll his head back to get through the, some of those samplings. And it was just unreal. You know, you, all that time goes by. And for that one moment, you know, and it's not how I envisioned. I was set up on the saddle and I, you know, in my mind the pictures I have of him, he comes out of this bedding area and up and over the saddle and he comes down the ridge the way i walked in, so uh,
1: so oh yesterday
2: yesterday I get in there, yesterday morning I go back on him again and I just I, I just kind of hung out at our little parking area and um, he tripped a camera on a scrape at daybreak and so I hurried back around the other way and where I was the afternoon before when I saw him, and uh, I had a lot of chasing going on. It was just little bucks. Our ruts about to kick in here. Um, Usually it gets really hot around January the 6th through the 20th, and um, I kept thinking with all that commotion yesterday that it would get him up and moving if he was in that block of woods, and um, just... A lot of activity. That's not him. So we got till February the 10th in Alabama. We'll see. You know, those opportunities don't come very often in big blocks of woods like that. Um, Oh man, we'll see. But you know, to see to to see him in his element like that was is kind of surreal. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, I, I hate to say that I feel defeated, and you know, I'm just a guest at his house basically. But to see a deer that out of out of all that history and studying and then to actually get to see him in person it, even though i didn't get to take him it was still it was still pretty cool to get to watch him so
1: is that that buck that you sent me yeah
2: yeah, yeah he's, he's a stud yeah. he's a stud yeah. yeah we we hunt just five-year-olds and you know we let the cards fall where they fall but he's just got a big heavy unique frame and um that's just natural brows. Like we cannot, we have a lot of kudzu there. I know we'll talk about it later, but we can't get him to move. He'd have to move about 2 or 300 yards further than what he is now and he just won't get to the kudzu for some reason. So he's got that big off just off just natural brows and um I wish he would I wish he would have gotten the kudzu because there's no telling what he would have blown up to. <laughs> jeez, jeez. Well, let's see. I hope you get
1: to catch up with them and and that was a cool little update on on how your hunt's been going down there the rut in Alabama um for for the listeners guys we have Cody Catherine, Alabama Cody let's hear a little bit about you where you're from what you do for a living how long you've been hunting that sort of thing and uh and we'll keep going from there Yeah man
2: I just want hey first of all I just want to thank you for having me on the podcast and I think what y'all are doing on the Facebook group uh, there's some really cool topics that that information was not out there when I was growing up. It's just the the good and bad of social media, but this is a good thing. Um, and y'all are doing great things, and I think it's going to just really tee up our habitats for the next generation to enjoy some really quality hunts. And uh can't thank you enough on that. But um, I appreciate I'm, that. I'm here in Alabama, uh, Greenbow, Alabama. But uh, I've grown up here my whole life I'm a firefighter i got went to Auburn University and got in the fire service They have a little programme where they put you through school and um, just stuck with it after school and I uh, got married to a great beautiful wife and two beautiful kids and I uh, still work at the fire department and then I started my own business eight years ago and just to pay for my hunting trips and uh That's turned into a big-time, full-time job. And so we're fortunate. We hunt three farms in Kentucky. We got a 280 and a 60. So a lot of different uh, challenges with those size tracks, you know, good and bad. And then in Alabama, we have a 3,000-acre boat-only club that's a five-year-old. There's just the harvest restrictions are a five-year-old. So in Alabama, we can get three bucks. Kentucky, we get one buck. So – if you can shoot three five-year-olds in Alabama at our place, then you're more than welcome. But we just have 13 guys on 3,000 acres, and it's just been a dream. It's, it's, I put it up there with my Kentucky. There's a lot of times when I'm in Kentucky I think about, you know, the deer that I have here in Alabama and why am I in Kentucky right now. So it's uh, it's good. It's convenient. And, you know, the downside is, is with the five-year-old rule, it's tough to get the kids over there and then a, you know, three-year-old eight-point comes out. So, we have to be mindful not to put the kids in situations that are going to deter them from wanting to hunt, you know, or having unrealistic expectations for a new hunter. But um, I have a couple of little places I can take the kids by the house, and uh, it's worked out great. Little neighbors have put little food plots over on neighbors' corner their hay pastures so the kids can sit up with their guns and have some good hunts. So, nice. Very blessed, very fortunate to have some. Big and small, but all they but all four places are very unique and very have their different challenges. But they are, but some of the same practices have worked in all four areas, and so it's been pretty cool. Yeah,
1: it's interesting you say that. Like we're going, uh, you know, we we work with people all over the place on habitat management, and I'm actually flying down to. Jackson, Mississippi, to work on uh, a friend of ours' property, uh, Raleigh, down there. Um, And while the habitat may be different, uh, a lot of the principles remain the same, right? So it's it's pretty pretty cool to be able to go to different places, but know that a lot of these same principles still work and, and are solid, a good foundation, if you will, right? That's right. Kind of like you just mentioned.
2: You know, I grew up, you know, uh, mama would go to Walmart with mama and me and my brother would run to the magazine rack and we'd pull a Field and Stream magazine out and my mom was shop we would just sit there in the little aisle and look through all the deer pictures you know and but what was always funny is they you know Field and Stream magazines they would always have this picture of a field and it'd be a it's like put your stand here and the deer bed's here and then this is the trail and then we would go to an Alabama pine thicket in South Alabama where timber companies own and it's like 600 acres of you know, pines that are 10 years old. And I'm like, I don't understand. The deer ain't bedding in the same spot. They're not walking the same trail every day. They're not, you know, they're not eating. This ain't the only food source that they got, right. you know. And so it's, it's, it, it opens your eyes to get out and study. But when you rip, but, but that same mentality of hunting the wind in these travel corridors and narrowing them down, you can do that when you start peeling the layers back. It's just not. It's cut and dry as, you know, the way I grew up thinking it should have been. Um, And, but it can be, it can be, they can be figured out and the same things apply. Like in Kentucky, it's open fields, as you know, it's just like the Midwest in some places. um, As far as row crop and timber and the deer will travel certain ways, you know, but we have to adjust that now in Alabama every like we have a huge acorn crop this year. It's unreal. Literally, like, it seems like every tree is dropping acorns, and I didn't hear any dropping this past week, but uh, there's still a lot of deer feeding on acorns on the ground, and we got some amazing food plots and natural browse still for them to eat, but how can you pattern deer like that when you're bow hunting, you know, uh, it's tough, You know, but yeah, so I would say, like, in Mississippi, it's a lot like here, and um, it's a great, it's it's good to hear other people's tactics, what people how people are successful, because I think sometimes nowadays with social media and trail cam pictures and people posting these pictures, they're like, man, that's cr-. you know, a lot of people say, well, that'll never happen here, that'll never happen here, you know, and then they need to shoot three year olds, and then they just assume that that's the way things are going to be, you know, but really it's not it's not that unachievable, you know, if that's what you want to do.
1: Right. Right. And now you mentioned your your 3,000 acre spot and, and your your own business you started that's more of a full time job now. Are those hand in hand with each other, or do you want to dive into to what you're yeah, doing there? Yeah,
2: yeah, we I own a bed swing company. We build hanging bed swings and travel all oh, over okay. the country, sending them out. But no, we uh, we we had an opportunity. This is kind of and this is kind of unique. I know right place at the right time, but this is US Steel property, and you know US Steel's not in the timber hunting business right Um, they got property all over the country but so they just own land yeah yeah and i would encourage y'all to reach out each one of these tracks or each one of these districts has a land manager that handles the real estate side like when they sell some of their land for developments or a lot of times for tax incentives they'll they'll sell property to a city if it's in a city limits um for a developer and offset paying the taxes on all this property you know Interesting. But, uh, yeah, I would reach – it's a good place to start on good tracks of land. But this particular track in Birmingham, and they own thousands and thousands of acres across Alabama, but this particular track um, is close to a lot of neighborhoods. It's a suburban deer hunt. We're in the city limits. And because of that, it had a lot of trespassing. It had a lot of people riding side-by-sides and going out drinking and riding at night and, and doing different things. And not that those guys are bad. But what happened was is they had a situation where a girl was in, in a harness, in a side-by-side, and they were, everybody was drinking, and they were trying to cross a creek and got off in a deep spot and rolled it, and the girl drowned. Um, and then they had a situation, and there was a, an argument, and some people got in a fight, and one person got shot. And so U.S. feels like, hey, man, we got this problem down here that we're, we're potentially getting held liable for. And we just had – one of our guys just happened to be in the right place at the right time at a real estate meeting and said, hey, we can fix that. You know, if you lease us the quote-unquote recreational rights, we'll gate it, get the trash off of it, and police it, keep people off of it, and we'll do a five-year lease. And so we're on year eight, and it's been a dream. It, it was tough at the beginning um, getting people that grew up there thinking that they could ride and do what they wanted to Um but I oh. said all that to say this, you know, people say, oh, well, I mean, you could do anything with 3,000 acres. I mean, we pretty much started over. I'm not going to say the deer were killed out, but it, is, it was poached heavily, heavily. It was, a, it was a free-for-all, you know. And this was when Alabama, you could kill a buck a day in Alabama. So our our season comes in October 15th and runs at the time till January 31st. So you can imagine the damage that was done, you know. Uh, as far as knocking the deer herd down. But uh, my responsibility with North Cahaba is I'm the game manager. So it was my responsibility to come in, figure out where we're at, where we want to go, get everybody to buy into the program, and then I handle the habitat improvement sides, the the planting, the road building. um, And that's just part of my contribution to the club. And honestly, that's probably been one of the most – I don't know if you want to say maturing, but it's one of been been one of the biggest surprises for an enjoyment is seeing these guys take. You know, you get a text. I just killed the biggest buck in my life in the Long Pine plot. And I remember when you know I built that food plot. You know, and to to these guys to have these opportunities to harvest these amazing deer, older deer in our backyard, basically, um, in a habitat improvement situation has just been a dream. So it. It's been a challenge. It's, it's a lot of people were like, "You're just wasting your time." And there's no way, you know. But you'd be amazed just a chop a day would get you over time, you know, if you just don't give up.
1: Very cool. And and yeah, those are always the best
2: calls to get. We,
1: you know, we can relate a little bit with our land plan services. We get calls and texts and pictures. It's like the most rewarding thing in the world. It's yeah, really cool. It's almost a better than shooting a buck yourself. It is.
2: It really is, man. It's um. You know, we all get excited, you know, when you love to hear deer stories, you know, and, uh, but you, when somebody's pumped up telling a deer story, you know, it's almost like you're like sitting there eating popcorn and watching a movie, you know, like you just like, why, what did the deer do? Where did he come from? You know, how many did you see, you know, and it's just like they're stoked, man. You can, they're, you can hear it in their voice how excited they are. And, you know, that, like, for this particular instance, I was pushing an old roadbed out, and because of the fire department and family and my business stuff, I'd get on the dozer, like, in the middle of the night. And this was, like, 3 in the morning, and I pushed down to a creek, and I was trying to get turned around, and there was, like, some privet on the creek, so i I'd just kind of go 20 feet, turn, push 20 feet. Well, I noticed in the, in the lights on the dozer, the soil looked pretty good when I was scraping it, so I thought, well, let me just push till I can't go no more. So I pushed out about an acre. A little over an acre plot, but it's kind of kidney bean shaped, if you will, along this creek, and it's turned out to be one of the best food plots we got, you know, and a lot of good hunts have been there. I, I've had some good hunts there. I haven't killed anything, but um, to see deer coming in there and using, and everybody's like, man, you were on the doge at three in the morning. That's crazy. You know, you're going to get hurt, or, you know, you even know what you're doing. <laughs> so, anyways. And that's kind of anyway. how we got, we got
1: Paired up, uh, yeah. you reached out, and, and you uh, had some cool info to talk about. <laughs> and that bulldozer, it's how I—it's kind of how you caught my attention. I was thinking, you know, yeah, that's that's a great idea. And I'm, I'm, and then you said something about uh, I learned how to drive this thing <laughs> off YouTube. Yeah. And I was like, what? So I so I know you have a lot of responsibilities there at the, at the club, but you know, running the dozer and building plots is is kind of the, one of the subjects we're going to cover here. Yeah, tell us, tell us about your your dozer from YouTube. How that all got started, and and how you know a guy like me or our listeners can yeah. go do the same thing.
2: Man, it's crazy. So you know, I I built. Food. I used to take a twenty inch Murray pushmore that was not self propelled, and I used to clear out little plots with that, and I raked, and then. I would save my money and work little odd and end jobs, and then I got a little disc for my four wheelers, and I had my buddies that didn't hunt come ride on the disc and help me break it up. So I've done all of it, but uh, this Dozer situation, what happened was, is you know, it's the North Cahaba is a big hardwood block that's grown up. You know they they iron they stripped the earth for iron ore back in the 1930s and 40s and when that became an obsolete way of getting iron ore for steel production they just like U.S. Steel just left in like 1940s or 50s whenever it was and so the land just grew up and we was like man we got to we're gonna kill these deer with bows we got to have it more accessible depending on what the wind's doing and we got to have ways to concentrate the food source to get them to come to not just you know, 2000 different acorn trees, you know? And so the idea come up for a dozer. So I got to Googling places that rent dozers, you know? And so we found a place called Cowan equipment in Birmingham. And now Cowan's got places all over the country, so you can reach out, but, um, it's not that hard to do, you know? And then we got 13 guys. And so the dozer is like $1,500 for five days or 40 hours, whichever comes first. And then usually we run about three or $400 in fuel through it. And uh, so anyway, so I called the guy, and I was like, hey, you want to rent a dozer? You know, what's your timeline? He told me in price and all that. And he was like, y'all have an operator? And I was like, yeah, 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 we got an operator. I mean, we got some good old boys we we'll figured out, you know. And uh, so – I said, "Uh, what what kind of Dozers y'all got there, you know? He said, oh, we got Volvo and Case. And I said, okay, how much does it weigh? I was trying to act like I knew what I was talking about, but I had no clue what I was talking about. And while I'm on the phone with him, I'm Googling Case Dozers, you know, and getting models. And I'm like, oh, is that the 670 or the 880? And he was like, oh, it's 750. I said, okay, okay, good. So then I knew what to Google. So after I saw, we went ahead and put a deposit and had it scheduled delivery date, you know? And so in the meantime, I get on YouTube, and there's all these YouTube videos of these guys that are heavy equipment operators that post with their GoPro, startups, running, efficiency, and smoothness and all that, you know. So I watched a ton of videos when I just had downtime, you know, on how to run a dozer and things to look out for. And so then the day comes, and they, they deliver it. And I jump up there, you know, and it's not quite like it looked on YouTube, you know, but I'm trying to be cool in front of the delivery guy like I know what I'm doing, you know. So I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll sign your papers. I got to answer these emails. But really, I was looking at my phone and a diagram of the controls. And uh, so I cranked it up and I, I move it 10 or 15 feet and turn it, kind of get my feel for it. And I was a little rough with it at first. I didn't understand the foot clutch. But once I kind of got my, spent about 10 minutes kind of working around in a circle there, then I was ready to go. And um, the first couple of years, what I would do is I would just push food plots out just wherever wherever I could create food sources. And those food plots have been great. We don't necessarily hunt those food plots all the time. Um, but now, as I've gotten better at running it and getting it in and out of places, we've started putting food plots in strategic locations, and that's been that's been huge. But, but yeah, so the dozer is something that I would encourage people. Like, you may not need a dozer every year. We just agree to do it every year because we've got such a big track, and we only get 40 hours at a time. But you can call and budget. I mean, you got between now and next hunting season, you know, if that's something you want to do and budget and learn. And it's a game changer. I mean, it takes a lot of sweat equity out of it and you can get stuff done quicker and faster. And it's a, I, I cannot stress how big of a difference it made. You know, before before we got the Dozier, um, even Home Depot's will rent 50 horsepower skid steers for like 230 bucks for a day. So before we got to Dozier at a different place that I had, and before I got my tractor, I would go to the Home Depots that had a rental center. Not every one of them have a rental center. You just have to find one that's closest to your hunting area. But those 15-horsepower tracks, skid steers, they're pretty safe. You can tow them with a three-quarter-ton truck. Depending on who's working at Home Depot, they'll let you pull off with a half-ton truck. As long as you got electric brakes, I think you'll be fine. But the bucket has teeth. On the bucket so I would push this place out and then roll the bucket down with the teeth and that would basically like disc my ground up you know for my little small plots and stuff but I could push roads out I could push each food plot a little bigger and the cool thing about like the Home Depot skid steers is if you rent after 4 pm you don't it doesn't have to be back to the next day at 4 p.m so let's say your hunt lands two hours away well I would suggest renting after four because you can save you get that time back. You know the the driving time back and just run it through the night. Just take a buddy with you to look out in case something happens. But um, there's ways that it can be done. You know, I think people think that it's not it's not something they can budget for. Or they don't know how to do. And I'm just an old good old boy from Alabama with YouTube. And I'm telling you, you can be done. And it makes a game. It's a game changer.
1: That is that is such a great story. And I'm glad we. We are covering that. I'm not saying everybody and their brother should go out and try to be an operator, but yeah. at the same time, you know, if you're safe and, and you can be a little smarter and think outside the box, if you did, um, yeah. that's, that's genius. Because like, like like you, I started with hand tools, and I got the ATV right. with a little disc, and my buddy stood on the back, just like you yeah. said. That's and right. Literally, um, to have the equipment – is so much more
2: efficient, if you will. So right, I like you're you gonna said. get your you're gonna get the results you want a lot easier and a lot faster. Um, and I and I know that not everybody can go in places and like pine like timber company leases and just knock down trees and do things like that. Sure, but you know like that 50 horsepower skid steer, they also have like 30 horsepower skid steer, and it, it will get in between pine rows. It's small enough that you can get it between pine rows. So if you let's say for like Mississippi and Alabama that have uh, these pine plantations, if you've been, spent any time in the pines, you'll find a stand of dead pines or you'll see where a dead pine has fallen and it's opened the canopy up. You know, you can – we did this in South Montgomery County one time. We flagged a way in. We went through there with our uh, machetes and just D limbed it so that we could get down through there if the pine's good. And we just took the skid steer and got in the middle and just pushed us a road through the pines following the dead Trees that had fallen and the canopy had opened up, you know, until we found an area. There was a couple of trees that were bad that you could tell were dead. And we got, we got them down with that skid steer, pushed it, and made a little micro plot. And then we took the debris pile and put it around the ground blind and roughed it in. And it, it was it's doable, you know. Um, not saying you can go out. Obviously, you can't go out and clear cut somebody's timber company if you're on lease land. But there's ways to make it more accessible and make your plots bigger. And you can do it quicker with the right equipment. Definitely.
1: And that skid, was that um, just a bucket on the front then, the bucket with the the little uh, claws on the front of it? That's it.
2: The the ones that I've seen in Alabama don't have the grapple on it. It's just the teeth on the end of the bucket. So it's not a smooth bucket. It's just you can just, once you scrape off the area or the road or whatever, maybe you've got a road that's washed out or whatever you're doing, then you can roll the bucket back and just use the teeth. And so then I'd run back to my truck real quick. And throw my seed and fertilizer and my bag spreader in a bucket and then just run back up the hill to where I had worked. You know, I mean it's and like you said, I would definitely have some like your first time or two that if you do go that route, have a buddy come check on you, take your wife, somebody just to play, sit around, play on their phone. But if you if you got stuck or you know if you got a limb stuck in the machine or something like that, you can have somebody to help you. You know, sure. but it's I highly recommend it. A lot of I think a lot of people don't realize the resources that are out there to help them achieve the goals that they want, and they are there, and 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 it's attainable.
1: I love it, and that's affordable too. Like you said, obtainable, yeah. affordable. I mean, you know, a couple grand for forty hours of dozer work, you're gonna pay yeah. somebody a lot more than that,
2: um, right? And you think, like, on something that's so, like, back to when I used the ATV disc, you know, and we were just trying, man, and we were so proud of our little plots. But, you know, if you didn't go in there and blow the leaves off of it, if it wasn't for the leaves covering it up, it was overgrazing, and the deer were going to demolish it. So really and truly, like, it was a waste of time on those small plots. Like, right. I couldn't I couldn't get, a, you know, by the time the leaves started falling and the deer got off acorns, it was the, those small plots like that because the overhangs. They they didn't get good sunlight. The soil was terrible, uh, and it just wasn't big enough. And that's kind of why we said, hey man, we need to open these plots up. We need to make them bigger, you know. Which kind of brings me to my one of my next points is is the doe situation. I know a lot of people believe in a tight buck to doe ratio, but we haven't killed a doe off our Kentucky farms since 2010. And so when I talk to people, like if you're gonna if you're gonna be bold and go against what you know, I'd say studies or what QDMA pushed for years. Um, you better have your ducks in a row, you know, or people just going to really think you're dumb.
1: But so what, go, go into that a little more, Cody. What do you mean exactly against what what they're pushing? I know they they push for usually a heavy dough harvest. It, it all depends on where you're at. It's all it's all that's property right. or state or <clears throat> county specific. If you really get down to it, and that's what the trail yeah. camera surveys help with. But that's right. It, what do you mean exactly by kind of going against it and, and having your ducks in a row? Well,
2: so we, here's the things that I, the deer that I hunt, they want no pressure, they want good habitat, good cover, good bedding, food with water, and they want those to breed. Basically, those four That's key the ingredients. The Same exact thing here in Michigan. You couldn't have set yeah. So if you take those four key ingredients and you start making those areas more attractive, I can't understand why in the world you would want to take the does away and they say well you need a more intense rut you know one of the reasonings for that is they say a more intense rut well that depends on my neighbors so like in for instance in kentucky on my 60 acre farm the smallest farm i have it's an hourglass hourglass shaped farm and it's got i got two neighbors that are terrible they're good people they just you know they call it i'm gonna get my deer for the year and it doesn't care if it's a spike or a 10 point whatever deer comes out that guy's going to get it. Then his father in laws going to come, do the same thing. And then the nephew and then his kids are going to do the same thing. And before you know it, they've taken 10 or 12 deer off the side of you, you know. And so I was like, I need to limit. And in Kentucky, the gun season coincides with the rut. And, there, and the state of Kentucky's philosophy is, is we need to kill down the deer. The best way to do that is put as many guns in the woods as we can when their deer are most active. That's blatantly what they say. So, well, if that's the case, I need to limit the my buck's exposure to the neighbors' guns. So we quit killing does because I want as many. I want to hold as many. They don't come in. Obviously, they don't come in heated at the same time. The more I have, more winning. The more lottery tickets I have in hand, the better chance I got at winning. And so, to make sure I offset that, though, I increase my habitat, increase my food so that the deer can take it. And I did that with my trail cam surveys. And what we did in that 60-acre track is we started beating them. We don't – they still kill some of the bucks that come through there that we're trying to hold, but it's nowhere near what it used to be And because we have a lot of does on that property. And when they come in heat, those bucks come in there and they stay up. It's thick. Um, and I can talk about – this farm has been a prime example of a lot of our different hot topics but we have the does and we have the bedding. And I've never, in Alabama, I've never was really big on hinge cutting because it was just a, it just wasn't taught. You know, we never did that. We showed up, we gun hunted. When gun season was over, we left and we come back in September when it was time for a work day, you know. Um, but this this particular 60-acre farm was subject to an ice storm in 2010 and it stayed frozen up there for like 14, 15 days. It was crazy. And a lot of the limbs broke and fell down, and a lot of trees did, and it's created this massive briar thicket. Like un- this undergrowth just grew up in there, and people's like, "Well, you should burn it. You should burn it." But man, it is thick bedding. And so by us not killing a does on that, I thought, well, let's apply that to the three thousand acre. Let's apply that to the Alabama philosophy, and that's what we did. Like, we, I mean, if our guys want to shoot does, it's not a don't shoot does. But it's a, we don't shoot those to get a one-to-one ratio or two-to-one ratio. You know, our philosophy on those is, is if you want a dough for me, great, no problem. But we want as many does as we can so that we limit these bucks that we're trying to get to five-year-old. We're trying to limit their exposure off the property. We want them on our property as much as we can. And if it worked on a 60-acre block, it should be really successful on a 3,000-acre block. And I've learned a lot that some of these deer, doesn't matter all those four key ingredients, no matter what you do, they're going to be travelers at certain times of the year. They just <laughs> whatever you can do. they just up one or roam. But, uh, but so, yeah, we did. So that's the thing. And, you know, I've caught a lot of slack on that. And they're like, well, if you, if you decrease your dose, you'll have more funds, And I'm like, well, let me go talk to a cattle farmer about that, because that doesn't make any sense. If I tell my farm, if I tell the farmer I'm going to take 50 out of his 100 heifers away, he's going to have more babies. How's that work? And you know, the farmers I talked to laughed. And they were like, "Well, that's just the food. If you've got malnourished mamas, they're not going to be receptive. They're not going to have babies like they should, and they're not going to have healthy babies. So the survival rates are not going to be that good. But as long as you got healthy mamas," He's like, notice some farmers feed extra. Some farmers rotate cows off their cows off from others. And I got thinking, I said, well, it can't be that far off from deer. I mean, I know it's not the same animal. So, Well, uh, you,
1: you you bring up some interesting points there. So that's, a, that's a, a hot subject, right? Shoot does, don't shoot does. I've done both. Um, it, and it all depends on, and you mentioned something key there, which it all depends on. Can your habitat support it? You are increasing right. your habitat to support the fact that you're not shooting the does. You know,
2: right.
1: A state like Pennsylvania, I was talking to a forester uh, on the podcast last night. They call their woods like deer driven woods. Like whatever is growing in the woods for the most part in a lot of places is because that's what's left after coming right. through. Like they fence in ten acre, twenty acre, hundred acre spots to get proper regeneration. So in that case you you want to shoot does
2: that's right, that's right. It
1: all, de- it all depends, and it's all very specific. It's not a blanket statement, so I like how you how you are addressing right. it and then increasing your habitat to support that.
2: You know, a lot of people talk about, so they say from an intensive rut, well, the bucks won't have to come out of there. You know, the bucks would, quote-unquote, stay in a thicket if, um, you know, if they don't have to go far to look for does. Man, I'm telling you right now, they're coming out to look for does. Yeah. And not only that, the neighbor's bucks are coming to you to look for does, you know, if I ever have the opportunity to interview like, uh, Mark jury or Lee Likoski, you know, Lee, if you, if you study Lee, he manages his own farms and he's pretty intense with, you know, doing his own thing and not bouncing around the outfitters. And I, I would like to question him. Who, are you coming here shooting these does? Is anybody shooting these does? Cause I, I think you, I think you'll find that there's a lot of people that aren't shooting the does. And, <clears throat> Another thing is too is you got to account for the number of deer that are getting shot off your property. I and mean, we all have friends, and even myself, you're like, where did this deer go? Where did this deer go? And they're just getting shot, and you don't know about it. Um, yeah. But uh, I think the habitats can support a lot more deer than what's led to belief. You know, we have a place called Oak Mountain State Park here in Birmingham. It's around eleven thousand acres, and it's been it's surrounded by neighborhoods, so all the deer so it's been this great um, preserve, if you will, and then all this development because of the urban sprawl in Birmingham has built all the way around it. So all the woods around it, all those deer got pushed onto 11,000 acres, you know. And it's nothing to see a five-year-old deer on that place that's 145, 150 pounds, looks like a goat with a set of horns on it, you know, like a almost like a Texas-looking deer. And uh, that's an overpopulated situation. You know, when you see these mamas uh, at this time of the year and you can see ribs and they're just, their heads are sunk in, you know, their hips are sunk in. They don't have much meat on them. That's a, that's a habitat situation, you know. Sure. Obviously, I would take some deer out of the hat. But I think a lot of people would be surprised at if you create, if you work on those four ingredients, the the change that you will see. And the bucks that you will win. But because you're doing two things there. If you're going to say, hey, man, I want more deer, then you're going to have to increase the food intake. And what I found that did was when my neighbor's bucks came during the rut, in Alabama our rut's right at the end of the season. So like in Kentucky, they rut usually around November 10th and 14th, pretty hot. But, you know, the season goes on till January 16th. So there's a lot of people that haven't tagged out that might still be up there tinkering around, feeding, and doing things. Well, in Alabama, the rut's right at the end. So most people, and I love my Alabama hunters, so it's not a knock on them. This is my from own experience. Most people, when the season's over, they're like, man, I'm ready for the lake and fishing and turkey hunting, and I'm done with deer, and they leave. Well, uh, just kind of like a cause and effect thing, once we started increasing their habitat and increasing our food, when the neighbor's bucks would come to chase our does, they found that we had no pressure and a lot of food, so they ended up staying around. And then, next thing you know, there's burn on us, and they stayed. And I can tell that through our trail cam surveys, you know. Um, so it's it's a win-win, in my opinion. We were able to hold more does, which increases breeding opportunities. It also recruited more bucks because in, in increasing our does, it caused it – It made us do the right thing and increase our habitat and food sources. So now when those bucks traveled for the rut, you know, it wasn't like they go back home, they go back to their home range and somebody's still feeding them. In Alabama, it went because the season ends. Most people, that's it. They're done. You know, so it's just whatever's left out there. You know, if if the food plots aren't good and they've been hammered, the bucks come back to us, you know. And every year we're getting new bucks, we're getting new bucks, we're getting new bucks. So I know that the the theory has worked for us. The philosophy has worked. Thought process.
1: I like it, and, and I think one thing that that you kind of mentioned, and and my buddy Al has mentioned, guy Rob we interviewed recently has mentioned. It's important to know what your neighbors are killing. Um, right. You know, just a little tip tip of the trade here. If your neighbors are out shooting ten does a piece, that's a different story than your neighbors yes. aren't shooting any does. That's and, right. Somebody needs to shoot them. So, <coughs> well, it's a, it's a balance. I would urge people to check out what a trail camera yeah. survey is and um and really start performing some of those. Now, moving on to southern habitat. So, like I mentioned in the beginning, a lot of these principles are the same. I'm I can like I'm picturing what you're doing in my head, like I'm there almost because I I get it. Now, like what right. but what are some of the differences that you found? Alabama versus Kentucky or, or – I mean, Kentucky's pretty similar to southern Ohio and, and even, okay. uh, even uh you know, parts of southern Indiana and whatnot. But what do you – what would you consider some of the differences are? And then I want to get into kudzu.
2: Yeah. Um Man, the one is the cover, the amount of cover. And it's just – it's difficult. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody needs to applaud somebody in Alabama when they kill a mature deer. But I don't think when you hunt open ground in the Midwest or even Kentucky – and you don't realize how tough it is to kill a mature deer in a big block of the woods like that uh, with a bow. You know, uh, it's hard. I mean, it's hard enough with a gun, much less a bow. But one, the main thing is the cover, and it's there's no. It's hard to pinpoint them, and so you have to really rely on the topography. You have to really. It's it's. I've learned so much on this 3,000 acre block how important it is to walk that land. I I'd say you need to walk it twice. Most people say don't walk it but once or whatever, but I like to walk it um, right at the end of the season before turkey season. And just I always make notes of where I see heavy scrapes and good rubs and things like that. Um, and then I walk it again in late August, checking some places. Because, uh, as you know, a lot of deer summer and winter different places. Not all of them, but some of them do. But the main thing is the cover, and it's it's a good and bad thing, and it's it's tough. Um, But the similarities, just like in Kentucky when we have beans, we have the kudzu in Alabama. And I know you want to talk about that some, but that has been a game changer. It has been one of the best things that I've discovered hunting. And I know that it's an invasive species, and I know a lot of people are going to say, you've lost your mind. But you need to read up on the amount of protein that's in that kudzu. There's more protein in that natural kudzu than there is in my soybeans in Kentucky. Um, oh. It's unreal, the protein. And I, the, the pictures of the deer that we have in the summer that are in that kudzu, just the body size on them. I mean, they look like our Kentucky deer. It's unreal. Just so good, heavy horned deer. The
1: the kudzu itself, I know it's like a, a viney. It can grow and take over freaking everything, right? Um, right. That's right. So how do you manage that? Do you keep it cut back? I mean it doesn't sound like you let it grow all over the place and just take over as like a monoculture or kudzu. Like what are you doing with that to make it more I, I guess better for your your habitat <laughs> fair, it it yeah.
2: So the the kudzu sometimes that sometimes it is on rough terrain. I I have per I personally have not ever found kudzu like on a flat reclaimed row crop ground. It's not okay. like that. It's usually in valleys and ditches, and um, it's kind of tough terrain. Um, now, if you find it on flat, flat ground, great. It's easier to work with. But what I did was, is um, was, so when the kudzu dies, it turns into this, like, gray matter, and it just lays down, and this, like, green rye-slash-clover-looking grass grows up in it. And I apologize for not knowing what it is, but I can tell you this. The deer love it. They'll eat that, that undergrowth as much as they'll eat the kudzu, and uh, so what I started doing was walking and and, uh, and and identifying places that I could get the Dozer up in there too. You know, that wasn't so hilly, hilly or steep or whatever. And in those places, I just pushed me a trail up in there before the green up. You know, usually in Alabama we start getting green about middle of April, first of April. So. Sometime between February and March, I like to get in there with a the dozer. And I just started pushing, like I, like just like you're going to build a – like they're clearing off a lot for a house. I just start pushing until I could work me out something that I could get my tractor in there in the fall and plant a food plot with, you know, that I'm not going to turn over or get in a hole. And uh, I just scraped it off. And then in the summer, the kudzu would cover it. It grows up over it, you know. And then I just take my bulldozer – I mean, uh, not my bulldozer, my bush hog, and then bush hog my way in and then till the ground and plant my food plot. And once you bush hog that kudzu, it's not like it's going to grow. In Alabama, we plant usually around the second or third week in September. So if you're bush hogging around Labor Day, you know, it's not going to grow and cover your food plot in the month, you know. Sure. So <clears throat> anyways, and then so as far as spring and summer planting, I just let the kudzu do its thing. I don't I don't worry about putting a summer plot in there. But we just do a basically like a six-way mix with like wheat, oak, clover, uh, peas and then we top dress it with some brassicas mixed in there and the food plot's been amazing and what i found was is that i guess all those years of decay when that kudzu lays down and goes dormant and leaves fall and things like that that is some of the richest best growing soil i've ever seen and i apologize i know you're gonna say well do a soil test do a soil test and i know somebody put on the facebook group the other night it's like man i just I don't have a lot of time. My system works. I do the quote unquote two hundred pounds per acre, triple thirteen, throw my seed out. I got it ain't broke, don't fit. You know, don't mess with it. Yeah, uh, but uh, it's amazing. And a lot of people are like, oh God, kudzu, kudzu, it's terrible. Man, we've used it to our advantage, and it's been a huge advantage it, growing good quality deer. I know that I'm not saying listeners go out and plant kudzu, but for those that do have kudzu, I think you need to tune into it. And I'm I'm sure you've seen the guys over in Atlanta, Seek One, Lee, and Drew killing those 200 inch deer in Atlanta. Yeah, they're all in kudzu patches, aren't they? They're in, they're in kudzu. They're behind them apartment buildings, you know. Yep. Um I can And that, that's, kind of, that's kind of what made me start paying attention to that kudzu, you know. And then the amount of deer uh, that we were seeing, not not only in the summertime, but this time of the year out there now feeding. It's like a big green field, with that. Undergrowth growing in it. So basically, what I did is identify places that I wanted to put food plots that would be kind of concentration points for boat hunting and got the dozer up in there and scraped me off. Uh, we got two different places that are acre in size that I just kind of want to put a icing on the cake. You know, the deer are already coming there this summer. Like they're already coming to this area of the kudzu. Let's just keep them coming to this area with a fall food plot. And I scraped it and it. You know, this spring and this summer, it, the kudzu will grow over our food plot, and then we'll go in and bush hog and do our fall planting, you know, in September, and it, it's worked every time, and it's just been, it's been amazing. I posted some pictures in the habitat Facebook page, habitat chat, and yep. it's just it's rich. It's a good, it's almost like a smorgasbord of just good growing fall food plot. So,
1: so you're kind of using the kudzu as as I guess, like around the edges, right? The deer are gonna feed on your food plots, but then they can feed on the, the edges of the kudzu. Or is the kudzu already going yeah. dormant by the time the fall food plot gets there?
2: I don't. It's going dormant by the time the fall food plot gets okay. there. Okay, so you're just like, more of a
1: summer, a summer
2: holdover that's, protein that's right. in spring okay. <laughs> food source for the deer. And <clears throat> man, we see so many more fawns on that end of the property. And I was talking to one of the uh, one of our guys, and I believe. Just my, just, I ain't no scientist, I don't have a PhD in this, but I think when that kudzu, you know, it gets up to about waist high, Um, a lot of, like, when you see the deer out there in the summertime, you'll see it, it's like a bean field in the Midwest, as far as height, I think it's a huge cover for our babies, you know, to stay safe from the coyotes, and coyotes is too thick for them to be running, trying to hunt something, you know, um, our turkey population on that end just seems like it's a lot more turkeys on that end of the property, and I attribute that kudzu to being a good cover crop, you know, um, yeah. as far as a screening to help protect them uh, and give them good habitat to stay in.
1: Well, I like how you're taking, you know, something and, and making lemonade out of it, right? It's an invasive, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's not preferred, everybody wants you to kill it, but the same time, you're using it to your advantage, which I think is it's important to do. We yeah. do that with some autumn and whatnot up here. I've I've heard guys do. I've some on my place. The deer can't stay out of it. Um, right. So it's kind of like depending on what your goals are, depending on how you know how into natives you are and everything else. Everybody's goals are different. So
2: I like That's how you fine. took that and
1: and did something
2: with it. I for advantage, you know. And people say about invasive. I have yet to see a place that was kudzu. Well, I take that back. I'd say, well, at least 80% of the places that we have kudzu, if it wasn't kudzu there, I have no idea what would be in there. I mean, it's nasty terrain, you know. Now, the deer still get on the side of them hills and eat like goats, but uh if it wasn't kudzu, I don't know what else would be in there. You put hardwoods in there, I don't know how you'd ever log it out. and be a mess. Um but I don't see it as a bad thing when it comes to wildlife. It's been a great uh, it's been a great uh resource for us, a natural resource that has helped improve the quality of the deer that we got. I'm
1: gonna send you a picture of uh our Mississippi clients farm that I'm gonna go visit and we'll catch up on it later with the You, yeah. it's, it's growing on like flat ground, so it's kind of interesting. Love to hear your take on it. Yeah. Um, but all right, so that, that's awesome. Any other differences we want to cover that you see down in Alabama that you don't see in Kentucky or even further north?
2: I think the main thing is something,
1: – Maybe something we talk about a lot on the podcast, and you're like, man, that doesn't even yeah. relate to down here, you know. Uh,
2: I think hinge cutting is something that I don't see in Alabama that people need to pay attention to. You know, I posted a picture the other day. I, it's I, kind of my way of hinge cutting, but I think it's the same – it's the same result. I had pushed out an open area that I wanted to plant this like uh, hardwood knoll, and it had a lot of big rocks in it, and the undergrowth just turned into big briars. When the canopy got open, this undergrowth just got it just went crazy, and it's like three or four foot tall. Well, not four foot, probably two or three foot tall, and like sage and briars, and it's been amazing. But it's, <clears throat> I think, is something in Alabama that's tough because a lot of people have leased timber company lands around here so they can't just go in and hinge cut pines you know and do things like sure. that so you sure. need to look into other ways to bed and uh utilize but i think they can also take just like i said we used to do with those limbs there's ways around that it's, it doesn't deer aren't it's not like a deer says well it has to be an oak for me to lay here in bed they just want some cover something thicker than what the natural surrounding is and if you do that with a bunch of dead limbs and some work days then great you know you can you can do some betting, but I think hinge cutting's big. Um, I, I, I I think I, I think one of the biggest hurdles for guys that that have not bought into the quote unquote, and I hate that term, trophy hunting, but just mature deer hunting, is they're like, well, I just my neighbors, my neighbors, you know, and it's actually I would say more difficult in the Midwest and Kentucky than it is Alabama because it's smaller open ground parcels. Yep. In Alabama, we got a lot of big timber, which you got to give the deer some credit. You know, they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. You know, we're quick to say we're like Box, the one that we started the show talking about. I've hunted him for, well, this is the first year he's been old enough to hunt, but we've been watching him for three seasons, and um, he gets off our property. Some I know he gets over on one of our neighbors, and um, they haven't been able to kill him. You know, so everybody's like, "Oh, my neighbors are going to kill him." Well, you haven't killed him, so. What are you trying to say? Your neighbor's a better hunter or are you trying to say the deer's <laughs> dumb and gonna get shot, you know? But uh I can't agree more. hinge cutting and you know, it's some creating that bedding opportunities and is different but on those regions and um and I'd say the neighbor situation. Uh other than that, the deer I mean obviously uh we don't have soybeans and standing corn in Alabama. But we've got other natural brows that's, we got a lot of it, you know, a lot more natural brows than some of our places in Kentucky. And I'd be willing to bet that we got the same deer density in Alabama that we do in Kentucky. It's just a different food group. But the same four principles, they go back to the same four principles, are the same all the time. Go ahead and uh, list those if, four once more for us, Cody. Pressure is huge. You've got to get the pressure off of them. Most people will say, well, I can't afford that lease. Man, every business around here is hiring. You can work extra. You're going to have to sacrifice something if that's what you want to do, if you want to kill an older deer. You're going to have to get the people off of it, or as many people, or you're going to have to get smart on the days that you hunt and just have a group of people that agree to hunt quality days, not quantity days. But pressure, uh, food, cover, and breeding opportunities. Is the four big key things to me pressure, food, um, cover, and breeding opportunities. And the food is something that, man, there's so much resources out here. You know, just the other day in the uh, Facebook group, the Habitat Chat Facebook group, a guy was posting a, a book from Amazon. It was like seven or eight bucks, I think $10 were shipping, and it went through different soil samples and things like that. Um, in Alabama, we have a group called WMS, they uh, Wildlife Management Solutions. They do food plots in South Alabama. And they are they sell seed for food plots all over the country, really. Man, these guys are good as gold. You call and talk to those guys, and they'll just, all right, where are you at? Have you tried planting this blend? Have you tried this? Blah blah blah. The guys over at Whitetail Institute, I can't, their research department just loads of free information, you know. And I go back to YouTube. Um there's really no excuse these days, you know, when it comes to those four categories, in my opinion, on ways to improve it if you want to take your hunting um to the next level um, I like it. I think those philosophies can be spread either way. I think you know growing up in Alabama when I heard and saw videos of people hunting in the midwest, yeah, you got bigger deer, you've got bigger deer for a lot of reasons. But the ways that you hunt those deer or have opportunities with those deer. We may not have 200-inch deer consecutively like that here, but we got we can hunt five-year-old deer. And you know, if, if you're hunting a deer based off a challenge, um, then a five-year-old deer is smart, no matter what the size horns he's got on his head. And I think if you want, if that's the route you want to take, then those four areas you need to dive into it, and the amount of resources that are there. our our generation is unreal and I think it's teeing us up to leaving a much better generation or much better habitat for the next generation and I just I'm excited for them to enjoy you know and I hope that those kids appreciate what's going to be handed down to them even if it's leased land you know I know people that have dumped well even our place tons of money improving the habitat and the quality of hunting in leased places you know I know we can't help development one day but there's some people that are going to come after us one day and they're going to have like a just, it's going to be teed up real nice for them. You know, the same place in Kentucky and all those places up there in the Midwest that y'all are at in Michigan that y'all are doing all these improvements and all the listeners and all those people on the Facebook pages that, that are buying in and they think, well, am I really making a difference? I mean, you're making a huge difference and a little bit goes a long ways. And uh, I'm really proud of, just in the last – I'd say in the last 10 years what I've seen our generation do for game management and habitat improvement for deer and turkeys, um, it's just been – it's phenomenal to watch, and uh, I'm excited to see everybody's ways to improving. and I think it's great.
1: Heck yeah, well said. Well said. I think, um, I think we're getting towards the, the end of this year. I wanted to – a couple more things quick. I wanna hear about one of your buck hunting success stories. Could be you, could be a client or not a client, maybe a club member on your yes. on your club, um, where, you know, you guys pulled in where you pulled in, you made some habitat management changes, to ma- manipulation, food puffs, whatever it was, and, and had a success story. Let's hear about that hunt if you got one
2: and then I'll yeah. get your uh we'll get your up pack for that. Yeah. Um I'll take I'll take my but there's several stories that come to mind. One, one's not favorable in my situation. A neighbor, a buddy of mine killed him. But I, I, I go to my dad's Kentucky buck this year. It was, my, it was my, it was the best buck that my dad's ever killed, and I got to be there with him when he killed it. His, I mean, when he killed the deer, I just, I, I broke down, man. I lost. I couldn't believe it. Uh, my dad is my hero. My dad is my best friend, and he's the one that got me into hunting. And um, he didn't grow up hunting. He just, when him and my mom started dating, uh, my granddad was a dog hunter in Alabama. I know you guys in the Midwest have heard stories about dog hunters, but they just showed up, dumped a bunch of dogs loose and went hunting. And um, I'm thankful. I didn't agree with, I grew up dog hunting and got away from it, but it got my dad into hunting, which got me into hunting and our time together. Anyways. We took the 212-acre farm, and we got some really good neighbors that join us on three sides of that farm. And so I knew we really had to step this place up. And this was a place that we had been hunted out. We got possession of this farm six years ago. And six years, it's been a challenge. It's kind of been, I'd say, a slower return on the results than what I had imagined or hoped for. But it is getting there. Um, We've created, it's just me and dad on it. On 200 acres, and we have two other places in Kentucky. My dad only gun hunts, so and we there's only a handful of time. So the pressure, we've really gotten the pressure off the 212. Um, we've increased the food. It does have some row crop on it. Um, we changed the habitat up. What we did with that is it has about uh, 100 acres, roughly, of property on the backside of it uh, that is unclaimed grow crop and what happened was is the creek washing got washed out and the landowner's just really good with the farmer farmer and his family and they've been buddies for a long time and so instead of getting another farmer in there to fix the creek crossing and get a combine from the backside, they're just like yeah let it go we're not worried about it no more it's a flood risk and it's too too much of a hassle getting our farm equipment across this creek so they let it go well the landowner uh was okay with it just being bush hogs, he paid a guy to just bush hog the hundred acres, just cut it down, cut it down. And so we convinced them to put it on a three year rotation and cut it. They got a twelve foot back wing mower and make it like every other swash So if you've ever been quail hunting and you've seen kind of what like South Georgia and South Alabama quail plantations look like where they strip the land for the quail and when they cut it, that's kind of what we did for the uh the two twelve and that hundred acres. And so we increased our food. We got the pressure off of it. Now we got the habitat. Now we got cover. So instead of just a flat 100-acre field, now we've got this sage CRP, you know, chest high. And some of that stuff is just, uh, it's been amazing at holding deer, but also the deer are feeding in it. Like, it's, it's just great. Um, and then we didn't take the does off of it. So it hasn't had a doe killed off of it in six years. Now, I don't know what happened to it before then, but I, I would have bet that it was shot out pretty heavily and we did those things because my two neighbors are such good people they're good people in a lot of ways but they're really you know we all know people that we hunt with that just they're always killing better deer than us and always ahead of the game it seems like um and that's that's where these two neighbors are they're really good and so if i knew we were going to have opportunity we had to really dive into those four ingredients and so we did and um my dad took a five and a half year old Ten point this year that's going to break 150 inches, and for my dad's, for anybody, it's a great deer, but for my dad, it's the biggest deer he's ever killed. And this deer lived on my neighbor's farm, one of my neighbor's farms, and he has big open hardwoods. And um, he tried to increase his habitat by cutting some of his timber out, and they left all the treetops. The logger left it he cut just above the the um, stump or the base of the tree. Took basically the trunk of the tree and left all these tops to try to open up the canopy and create some bedding in the uh, uh, undergrowth. But uh, it's just it's taken a lot longer, I think, than what they had imagined. And we've got the food, the breeding opportunities, and the cover. And when they come in those hardwoods, those bucks come to us looking for does all the time. And so I was already tagged out, and uh, at this point, and me and Dad were up there hunting together, and My dad had a couple of different opportunities that he choked on. He just, one, the deer come from the wrong direction. The other one, dad, literally got pulled up in the truck and (laughs) fell asleep in the truck before he got out. The deer was standing in front of the tree stand, so he couldn't go in on our cell camera. So a lot of stumbling blocks. And then so I tag out, and it's like getting to the end of our time up there hunting this year and we're sitting there having lunch on the tailgate or whatever and I said dad I saw a big rub at that creek crossing and he was like I'm gonna go there and I said all right well I'll just go sit on the backside and just watch and see what I see and the deer that the dad shot ended up seeing it was one of the most exciting hunts I ever saw I've never I've ever been in we had so I had so many does around me some were hot I had three different bucks feddy with does around me and I'm texting dad I'm like get over here get over here and at that creek cross, and he doesn't have cell service, and I'm just I'm just watching this. I couldn't believe it. Was, buck snort wheezing. It was just. It was like something you can't imagine. It was just. It was unreal. It's one of those days that makes it hard to ever get back in the woods again after a hunt like that. And wow, uh, the buck dad sees comes and he's coming right at me. Like he's coming. He come out of my neighbor's woods, come across my food plot. And he comes up the hill through that thicket, and um, a buck. Stands up. That was with the hot doe. That was a. He looked to be like a three or four year old. And so this big five year old turns and runs over there and runs him off the doe. Well, in that commotion, the doe gets up and runs across my property, and he followed her. And so I was just like, we got back to the truck that night, and I said, Dad, you should have been with me, man. You could. I mean, that was just a. It was an incredible deer, you know. And um, I was I was disappointed, you know, because I wanted my dad to have have that deer, you know, or shot at that deer. And so I was like, "Hey man, the next this is our last morning to hunt together before Thanksgiving." I said, "Dad, will you go back in there with me?" Unless there's a lot of hot does, maybe something, something will happen. So it was 40 degrees that morning. We pull up there, and it's on top of the hill. My dad doesn't really have good, the best knees, and so I built these six by five, twelve foot tall platforms for ground blinds to sit on. And um, and so we don't have a ground blind up there. It's just a platform and it sits on top of this hill. So I rode the gator right up to it so dad didn't have to walk far because most of the deer are over to the other side of the hill. So we get up there or whatever and waiting on the sunset, sun come up. We watch the sun come up. It was beautiful orange and, uh, orange and blue, Auburn sunrise, you know. And uh, the deer just, they're all around us. They're going crazy. There's there's little bucks cruising and all this stuff. And what we didn't know is this five year old was bedded with a doe in one of those paths that we didn't bush hog. 80 yards from us he was bedded and there was a the, you know their 12 foot pass base roughly i mean the guy bush hogging doesn't get out there and measure the distance he just kind of goes down the side of the field comes over a couple of rows and then bush hogs and then over a couple of rows and bush hogs and so you got these like little mohawks strips that are 12 to 15 foot wide and he was bedded and um i just happened to look over my shoulder about an hour after daylight and I saw an ear move and I could see the tips of his horns. I was like, "Dad, right there, right there, 80 yards. And, uh, but dad couldn't get a shot. And so for 30 minutes we had to sit there and watch this buck batted with this doe and six different bucks. What he did is he, I guess he moved the doe up the hill to get her away from the hardwoods, um, from my other neighbor. But what he didn't account on was her scent was blowing out across my neighbor's duck hole. And so it was like a swamp back there. So all the other bucks coming from the, if you can imagine a rectangle, he was, we were kind of in a corner and their scent was blowing back off the other side of the rectangle. And all these other bucks started coming in one at a time, circling this doe and it would make him stand up and run them off. And then he'd come and lay back down with her. And finally a buck come from another direction and it made the buck get, my dad's buck get up and come towards us to run that little buck off and I got it all on video. Dad's shaking. I can hear his voice and he's like, <laughs> you know, and dad shoots him and dad shoots a Remington 700, uh, model 270. My mom got it for him. This was the 40th season. And so 40 years ago, and he's, he's, he's killed a deer with it every year. And, uh, we call him one shot Fred my dad's name's Fred. And so he shoots the buck and the buck runs off the hill and just fold. I mean, he ran 20 yards and folded up and I just, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And I didn't really, you know, when you see a deer on trail camera, especially at night or in daytime, you don't really take it. You can't really tell. Sometimes it's hard on the mask to judge them, you know. And um, so we gave them a the deer a minute. Me and Dad were just sitting there talking and high and just taking it all in. And I got down and went over there to mark the deer. My dad got the gator, and um, I saw the mask on him and just how heavy-horned he was, and I just, I couldn't believe it. And I contribute that to his success. We had a lot of breeding opportunities for him. We had a lot of cover for him. He had a lot of good food right there, and he wasn't pressured at all. And my neighbors have good places. Um, and it very well could have had a lot to do with just in the right place at the right time. But that buck was known to stay on my neighbor's place year after year after year. And um, they had years of trail cam pictures of him, and we didn't have any trail cam pictures of him. And uh, I feel like we were able to pull him and hold him long enough for that opportunity based off those four ingredients. And I just would encourage the listeners just to dive into those categories and whether you got eight acres or you got 3000 acres and just really look at what you're up against. I always say, well, what's your neighbors doing? You know, what are they doing? How often are they hunting? And then play, make your place more attractive in those four areas based off what your competition is doing. And I think you'll be very successful. And I think you could be, you'll have your eyes open as to what kind of resources are there to help you improve those four categories.
1: Great story. And congrats to your dad. I'm on your Facebook right now. That thing's a hammer. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah. It's that's a good heck one, man. of a buck uh, there, Fred. Congrats. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that's yeah. just awesome. It's amazing. And we've had some, my dad works for me now. And so it's, uh, I always joke. And I said, well, I mainly hired my dad so that we could have more time to hunt together because awesome. <laughs> I said, hey, we're going hunting this week. he's all right, let's go. <laughs>
1: Heck yeah.
2: Now, that's
1: perfect story. I love how you wrapped the habitat into it. Nice job. And and I want to wrap this up like we always do. I want to understand what your favorite tree is, Cody. Let me know. Uh, could be habitat. Could be hunting. What tree uh, gets excited?
2: Man, I think the persimmon tree, you know? Uh, persimmon tree is overlooked a lot. Um, I mean, oak trees obviously are more common and they pull them in, but like on that two twelve, we had persimmon trees for some reason, I guess years ago, a farmer must have planted, I don't know, but they're on a fence road. And I've watched those deer year after year when they get up and they start to feed out in the food pots, they always go by and check those persimmon trees and, um, uh, they just get hammered. And, uh, I think if you can find a persimmon tree when they're ripe, you will know, have that um, kind of orangish, and you can bite into them if it has like a bitter taste to it, it's not ripe yet, but um, if it has that sweet taste to it, oh man, it's, you better post up, they come into it.
1: More great advice, man. Nice job.
2: Yeah, man. Uh,
1: Cody, I've, I've had a, I've had John here. a Took enough of your time today. I truly appreciate you hopping on. Um, what a great conversation! Uh, let's let's wrap up. Let us know how we can find you. Uh, maybe plug yeah. your, your bed swing company, whatever you want to do, and um, we'll put a plug in it.
2: Man, thank you, thank you for the opportunity. And like I said, I just thank you guys for this for uh, for pursuing this idea to improve habitat and helping others improve their habitat. The conversations are amazing. The podcasts are amazing. There's a lot of good. Um, takeaways that I think people can formulate their own plan, and I just man, that's it's a big deal. I I, I think that it's it's just been amazing as far as making better hunters and better stewards of the land uh, than what I saw 20 or 30 years ago. So Thank you for that. But I have a little Instagram page. I post some of our food plots and some of our tactics. It's called Bucks to Bass. It's on Instagram and uh, CC Bed Swings. Uh, but, man, I'm just thankful to be a part of your day and your time and thank your listeners for listening. Um, I know everybody's busy and got a lot going on. And so, if I can help or share anything that we've learned from to cut down on people wasting time or what may work better, man, just please reach out and I'll help any way I can.
1: Awesome. Well, we truly appreciate you and uh, thanks for coming on, Cody. Really appreciate the kind words. And, uh, Good luck this, this year in the, in the Habitat Woods, and come deer season, buddy. Yeah, man. Thank you,
2: guys, and uh, Happy New Year. Take care, buddy. You as well. Keep in touch, brother. All right. See you, man.
1: Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal, we can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras. The Habitat Hook from Nation's Creations. Packer Max packers Afflicter Broadheads, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Realtree United Country Lamb Pro Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much guys for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become Better Habitat
2: Managers.
0: The stories to back it—a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six eight question. Mule baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.